it's just this weird thing, man, where once it's gone, you know, it's hard to get back. And so that's where the reservation food becomes a thing where it's, you're in food desert. My reservation has a casino, doesn't have a grocery store. The only place to buy food is at the goddamn gas station. Welcome to the catch-up. Introducing your hosts. Eli Aruth. Editor. And... Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, news-breaking, food-porn-peddling, viral website on the dot-coms. It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy! There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. All right. And welcome to the catch-up. Welcome back to the catch-up, y'all. This week, we're going to get to the bottom of Native American food. True American food, if you will. So Jeff and I, we were inspired to learn more because, well... Like on any given day in any given city around the United States, you can find traditional cuisine from the Middle East, Asia, Africa, but it's near impossible to find any quote unquote Native American food. So I couldn't even tell you what Native American food is. Which is like a travesty. Feel, Eli, we feel guilty. Yeah. yeah, I feel guilty. It's like a travesty considering where we live. And so to help us have this conversation, we invited a couple renowned authors and cultural sages. We have ketchup regular Steve Bermucci. He's the editor at uprocks.com, author of two amazing children's adventures books sold everywhere you can find a book. Go get them. An extra special guest today, all the way from Berlin, Germany, Mr. Zach Johnson, a Native American from Washington State who grew up on a reservation and has written extensively on Native American foods and culture. Thank you both for helping us talk about topics we can't really hear about anywhere else. We're going to have them here. So today... It's going to be Native American cuisine, and with that, boys, welcome to the catch-up. Welcome, guys. Oh, that Thank was a so much. lovely introduction, man. Thank you so <laughs> that much. That was yeah. good. That was, I, yeah. I got jacked up. I realized you were talking about me, and I was like, oh, he's gassing me up. But for a minute, I was like, who is this? <laughs> Sounds cool. Yeah. And I appreciate like my new trick with you guys, because I like being on this so much, is to take cooler people than me and say, oh, I, I think you should have this person on. And then, like, if you want, I'll come in, too. It's, it seems to be working. So it's I'll a fair finder's fee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it works. I don't know if you should let Vince know that. His head might get a little bit bigger. Yeah. <laughs> so, guys, where do you want to jump in with this? Uh, I want to jump in somewhere. So, Ethan and I were talking about before the pod and doing a little bit of research before the pod. So, there's a National Museum of the quote-unquote American Indian in Washington, D.C., a popular eatery in Denver, Zach, that you wrote about, uh, is listed in Google on its own website as an American Indian eatery. I don't know personally the, if the term American Indian jives or is offensive or not. And based on those two things, you know, Smithsonian Museum, you know, the eatery that is indigenous itself. It seems like it's okay. I don't know if it's okay, but I wanted to start there because I catch myself when I'm talking about this subject. I might say Indian accidentally. That I know that's wrong. I might say American Indian. I don't know if that's wrong, but I'll correct myself to say native. So part of that is 
my upbringing. Part of that's whatever was taught in school. Part of that's whatever is wrong. But Help I want to get our nouns right. What are we, uh, yeah, what are I want to get it doing? right before we go into this wouldn't, conversation. Wouldn't Zach be the greatest evil genius indigenous person in the world, by the way, if he got you to invite him on your podcast and then started getting offended every, <laughs> every single yeah. term you guys use? No, it's not that one either. Thank you for reminding me of so, America's terribleness. Here's the thing, man. As long as you don't call me a redskin, I'm fine. <laughs> like, if most people are on that boat. When it comes to Native American, that's a little sketchier because that was a term invented by the government to like take away identities. Oh shit! And oh so, wow! I learned an idea. Yeah. And so there's there are people who use Native and Native American because that's just become what people use. But then there's other people in the indigenous community who are like, no, fuck that term, like because that just call me Skokomish or call me Cherokee mm-hmm. or what have you. I look at American Indian as a anthropological term, uh, similar to Amerind. So if you're in the sciences, it makes sense to use that because you're talking about a continent full of people. Mm-hmm. Similarly, so with um, Takabe in Denver and with the Smithsonian, they're talking about the whole continent. Mm-hmm. Like the food that Ben Jacobs is making out in Denver isn't that specific to just one tribe. You know, it's, it's American Indian food. He's making fry bread. He's making bison ribs. You know, he's bringing wild rice from uh, the Great Lakes. So it's a little broader. Similarly with museum, it's about the whole continent. Mm. Uh, so that's why the anthropological term is a little more centered, I guess. Whereas, uh, I mean, Steve and I have had this conversation before. It's like, why call me a Native American? And you just call me Skokomish. Like, he's Italian. You know, like, you know, it's sort of one of those things where why use the broad term if you know the specific term? But if you don't know the specific term, it's okay to use the broad term too. And you can ask, you know, like, you know, where are you from? sort of thing sure it's like someone calling me an arab i'm actually lebanese it's cool i'm not offended right yeah right, yeah but like the if broadest you know, term possible it's possible yeah completely sure. possible which, absolutely which and comes with a lot of connotations built into it whatever it might be so i get yeah. it and like there's also obvious things you can call people that are meant vitriolically mm. that well yeah then we might have to go out back and fucking throw a few fists around <laughs> but uh you know that's again obvious i think at this point so well because i'm curious because you know, the limited history that I understand, it was obviously a mistake calling <clears throat> people Indian when when they arrived on this coast, right? Or they arrived on the East Coast. Is that just one of the biggest miscategorizations of all time, even though we still use <laughs> right. American Indian right. like, like as what, a phrase? Or does it right. need to be echoed that it should never... I mean, because that's the thing. I just don't really understand it because... When you look back, it just right. seems like a mistake. Yeah, and it was a mistake that was never corrected because nobody cared enough to correct it. Mm-hmm. However, you know, the biggest publication in across the, uh, the United States, especially amongst the reservation community, is called Indian Country. You know, that's the newspaper. And Indian is still used everywhere in, you know, Native America or Reservation America, whatever you want to call it. Um, I kind of make it an analog to when you go to China and you go to the Far East like Hong Kong, you still see Oriental used on hotels and for restaurants, and it doesn't have a connotation like it does in the United States. It just doesn't. And so, I mean, I kind of look at it this way. If you're in Hong Kong and you're saying you're staying at the Oriental Hotel, I mean, what else are you going to say? If you're on the Pine Ridge and you're reading Indian Country, what else are you going to say? You know? Um People, I find, tend to not get 
too offended by Indian if you're there. And again, it depends on context. I mean, if you're talking shit, you know, who who knows? But it's another one of those things where it's like, it is what it is now. For some people, it's not. They still are going to get pissed off. Some people aren't. I mean, it's a, you know. Is this, you know, it's so interesting just to hop in here and you can see with how deeply Zach knows this subject matter, how little you'll need me today to be involved, (laughs) which is fine. God knows I talk enough. Um, but, but one thing that's so interesting to me when I listen to him, and one thing that I, I think that you guys do such a good job bringing out is, you know, Zach, Zach is not always calibrated as a writer to this internet world of like, something happened on Twitter, we react, we're pissed. Now this, this oh, I hope this person dies and also never <laughs> cooks again. And then, you know, the cycle burns out and and we just never really hear about it again, right? And then we're mad about something else. We're mad about, you know, someone using, um, you know, meat flippantly or do a food with preservative or whatever other food issue comes out, cycles through. Whereas I think Zach is like this very proactive thinker. And so he, you know, his response to this indigenous cuisine movement has never been like, let me react to us getting ignored or marginalized or insulted or someone having their terms wrong or something in a major food publication that I didn't like. His response has always been like, how do we refocus or to use the word you used just now, recenter this conversation, which is interesting because I think in the internet world, so much of how, how things move on the internet is centered around the idea of like what failed, right? This failed, let's talk about that, where I think Zach has just kind of created this cadence of pieces where he talks about like, this is, this is where this needs to head. So Zach, where are we in both media and in real life and talking about indigenous cuisine? Um, pretty small. Mm-hmm. I would say we're, I mean, for lack of a better term, in the baby stages, because this is a sort of thing that is only now starting to get media attention. Um, so Sean Sherman, who uh, wrote the Indigenous Cookbook and started the sous chef movement up in Minnesota, you know, he won the James Beard Award at the beginning of last year for that cookbook. You know, that got him on CBS Sunday morning to cook some food, and so people know his name. But amazingly, he still doesn't have a restaurant. You know, he's opening up a test kitchen this summer and a restaurant uh, probably a year after that in Minnesota. And a lot of the chefs I follow here in the United States, people like Hillel Echohawk out in Seattle or Brian Yazzie down in the Navajo, they're still just sort of traveling around reservations and doing pop-ups and things like, excuse me, things like that. They're, they're, there's no brick and mortar yet besides Takabe and a few food trucks in a few different cities. Um, whereas if you go to Canada and Toronto, there are people actually... They have brick-and-mortar indigenous kitchens in Toronto and Vancouver, so it's a little more advanced there. Um, And another big difference here is simply the access to the information doesn't exist yet. Like, there's no broad space you can go to where you know this is what it's going to be. So, like, I know I can go to certain chefs and get Italian-American food, and they are on Food Network, they're on the Travel Channel, they're on Up Rocks, they're on Food Beast, they're on Grub Street, they're everywhere. It's permeated. You can go to a, a Italian-American section in the cookbook section at any, you know, uh, bookstore, bookstore, and uh, there's a whole shelf. You go look for indigenous food, and there's Sean Sherman's, and the rest are either in historical texts 
from you know back in the 1800s or they're in anthropological texts. Mm. And so just that access isn't here yet. But it's coming because these chefs are coming up right now. There are chefs graduating from culinary school, and all they're doing is the indigenous food of their region. Mm. So they're going to go somewhere. So is the movement that you're specifically talking about, is that because the the chefs that you just mentioned that have notoriety, the uh, Tokabe in Denver that has multiple brick and mortars in a quick service fashion, is that still a big enough step from where we were before that it's, that it makes sense to be a movement because there was literally zero outside of potentially what was happening at reservations. Is that kind of your definition? Yeah, exactly. It feels like we kind of went from the sub-basement up to the ground floor. And now that we're on the ground floor, it's sort of like we have access to the stairs and all the other elevators and the escalators, and we can move up more quickly because there's more opportunity. And so when you look at the way that the indigenous food movement and why would we kind of I call it a movement in and of itself is these people are coming together from every part of the country from Mexico from Canada from even parts of South America the Caribbean the Polynesia Hawaiian Islands Alaska and they're sort of working together in places like I collective or you know going to work with Sean Sherman in Minnesota or just working with their own reservations at seed banks to figure out how to get their what their agriculture was back and then they're helping whoever comes along so if you know a chef is coming out off the reservation out of um, North Dakota they can find somebody to work with who you know is there to look at their food and give them a way to cook it give them a way to grow it and then it's sort of that's just the surface and so what's beyond that is the chefs that are already sort of established, so people like Sean Sherman or Brian Yazzie or um, Tokabe, they're specifically buying from agricultural sources off reservations. Mm-hmm. So they're supporting local communities that usually don't have any support. So what's being and, eaten on the reservations? Um, like shit. You grew up on one. You grew <laughs> well, up on one. Like what? Yeah, what? I mean, I my dad took me off because he didn't want me to grow up there, um, just because it's a t- tough life. Mm-hmm. Um, can you but it's go mostly into, shit. Before we go into right. it, we, can we go into that? Because here's the here's the limited context that I have is um, I I grew up in a Protestant church in Orange County, and every two or three months we would do clothing donations at the Paula Reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, we would cook food and we would donate clothes. It was, you know, I've been to similar communities in in Tijuana, and I've and I've been to similar communities in Thailand, but it was pretty crazy to see within a two-hour drive of where I lived kind of that level of poverty. And also that probably, that poverty also exists probably in the community that I was in. But as a kid, I was really struck by that. Um, And I don't know if the reservation that you grew up was like that, but I I would like to kind of dive into what reservations are for people who've never been to the reservation. Um, And... uh Again, like with what people want to be called an Indian or Native American or whatever, I can only speak for myself. Right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, other people have different experiences on different reservations. The majority of them are extremely impoverished. Um, there's a lot of gang activity, a lot of weird familiar organized crime, which sort of plagued my, my family's reservation. Um, mine is the Skokomish Indian Reservation, which is a very tiny reservation on the uh, eastern side of the Olympic Peninsula, but in western Washington. Uh, it was a, uh, it was an 
was not a nomadic culture for nearly 10 millennia because the food was so abundant where they were. So they built up houses, they milled wood, they had long houses, all those things um, that don't really have any identifier outside of the Pacific Northwest. You know, we weren't living in teepees, we weren't riding horses, we weren't hunting buffalo, none of that existed there. We weren't wearing feathers in our hair, no buckskins. We were wearing sweet grass hats and coats and in canoes and walking on the back of salmon, scooping them out of the river sort of thing. And so once the, uh, the tribe moved onto the reservation, they relied on salmon as their source of income, but then the Pierce County and City of Tacoma built a dam on our main river, which completely cut off our entire salmon supply, and that destroyed the economy of the reservation for, for until now. Uh, and so growing up, I mean, you know, you go around Reservation Road and you see probably 50, 60 cars just totaled in people's driveways and boats just sitting, you know, on the grass with piles of, you know, nets for fishing. And it was very, very obvious that this is a place where you're at the end of the road, so to speak. And my dad, like I, my family was there. And so we spent time there, especially through hunting and fishing, but he very much wanted to raise me in a different way. And so I was pretty much raised off the reservation, which created its own set of problems because then I was the only, you know, Indian kid in the white world. And so that was a whole other, you know, hornet's nest. But I I look at it this way. There are some reservations that have maybe turned a corner and are economically stable uh, for various reasons. Some of them casinos, some of them different agriculture, some of them different mineral rights. Um, the majority are not. I mean, even like my reservation, they have a casino and they make no money off of it. Walk me through that because that, you know, naively that is my introduction here in Southern California. You see beautiful casinos built on reservations and the reservation casino industry makes more money than the actual, the, than the non-reservation casino. So right. Vegas and Atlantic City combined don't make what the reservations across the country do through casinos. But can you walk me through why that money, is it not flowing down? What's going um, on? There are multi-answers to that. Again, it depends which reservation you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so some of the reservations in Washington State are some of the richest ones, mm-hmm. but they're literally next door to some of the poorest ones. Both have casinos. So it just depends what equity that reservation had when they decided to start a casino and whether they could afford it themselves. And so the ones who could afford it themselves, they had money flowing back in to their tribal members. But there wasn't couldn't afford it, they either went in bed with Trump or Harris or the Russian mob or the Italian mob to get a casino, and then they maybe don't see more than 5% of that money. Wow. And there's no regulations whatsoever. There's no, like, there's nowhere to go. Like, there's no Department of Commerce, no, you know, there's nowhere to go to be like, hey, the Russian mob is fucking holding us by the balls for the last 20 years, because nobody gives a shit. Yeah, like, it's still a casino. Get yeah. Here. Yeah. It's still gambling. Is... And and maybe I need a backup before I ask this question, but can we can we also explain to our our listenership why reservations exist and then why casinos were allowed? I know that's I know that. No, I love it. You yeah. guys take the ten thousand foot view, and, yeah. and for me, as someone who's who's worked with Zach and and worked with him on his initiative of you know really trying to tell these indigenous food stories. To understand and and to see you guys in such a genuine and interested way say, like, let's back up even further. 
reminds me of of where everyone's baseline knowledge is right and for me as a food editor like i can't lie like my baseline knowledge was terrible until some guy who happens to be this guy started insulting a bunch of my writers in the comments of our articles (laughs) and he was but when he was insulting them he was saying really insightful stuff and i you know used the tech technique that i know from from when things have gone sideways for me and i finally was like all right, you're definitely smart. Like, why don't you come write for us and stop? And he has, and it's been such a, such a success. But but that need for the ten thousand foot view, and you're doing such a great job giving it, is really interesting to well, me. Well, this is our safe space. Like, no, that's we what literally, I love. We, yeah. Like, why would I, we? We can't even pretend to know. Like again, even le- learning about you know the general consensus to non-indigenous folks is that the kiss. They make all this money from casinos. Like right. growing up, my parents were like, Damn, and some making... do, man. Like some and absolutely sure, do. Yeah. Sure, but then you know, as you grow older, I'm like, Harris is a big corporation. Yeah. They're on it. Like so, right. there's some equity split there They're that not... probably doesn't make sense. And you know, and no regulation because this isn't Nevada. This is in some cases these places are on what are still considered prisoner of war camps. You know, Holy so shit. it's just a whole mess of legal shit. I have no even idea how to get into. Mm-hmm. But uh, going back to your question, really briefly, I mean, the reservation system was started as a sort of a part of the treaty program, where it's like, okay, let's end this war, because in a lot of cases, the United States Army was losing the wars against all these people. This is more out east and plains and stuff like that. Like they they lost to the Lakota for like 15 years and had to give them all of what's now South Dakota in a treaty. And that was going to be their reservation, their territory. But then they reneged on that and then took more land and more war because they found Golden Black Hills and they sort of ended up whittling down their territories to these prisoner of war camps because you know, they wouldn't stop fighting for their land. I mean, it was their sacred land. The Black Hills are one of the most sacred spots in Lakota history for literally 10 millennia. And so the idea of people just going in there and just tearing them apart was they they were never going to let that go. And they still haven't because they're still owed that land by U.S. treaty. They just haven't given it back yet. Um, and so in that case, Pine Ridge Indian Reservation is still registered with the Bureau of Indian Affairs as a prisoner of war camp. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it's the poorest community in the Americas, in the United States especially, it's got you know very you know deep gang violence because you know there's nothing else to do um, to get ahead anywhere. It's a pretty much a food desert as well, for lack of a better term, because the people to bring it back to food, the people have been stripped of their knowledge of what's around them, because uh, in many cases for the last hundred years, they've been they've not been allowed to partake in their culture. You know, they've not been allowed to sing their songs, you know, dance their dances, speak their language, eat their food. Like straight up not allowed to eat their food. They were allowed to eat the food that the government brought them. That was it. And so what's happening now is this that's part of why the food movement is so big on in the indigenous community, because it's like, you know, you can't tell us not to fucking sing our songs anymore. You can't tell us not to eat our food anymore. Like there are huge issues with that given just in the foraging and hunting rights and where we're allowed to do those sort of things as an indigenous person. But the reservation system, you know, was started as this is where we put these people that, you know, won't go away, that won't stop fighting us. By the time it got out to me and my people in the Pacific Northwest in the you know, 1880s, 1870s, 1880s, they weren't really fighting, but the United States had already come to the conclusions like, no, we're just going to keep these people down because, you know, if they do decide to fight, if we keep them down first, 
will will have a chance to not have to spend more money because that was a big thing with uh, Ulysses S. Grant in the 1870s. Um, he changed our doctrine from extermination, which was started by Thomas Jefferson, to assimilation. And says, and Grant has this letter that he wrote to, uh, I want to say Congress, excuse me, I don't remember exactly, being like, hey, we're spending you know, $9 million a year fighting the Sioux alone, and we're just pissing this money away because we can't beat them. And so let's stop trying to exterminate them. We tried that for the last 100 years. Let's try to assimilate them into our culture because it will just be cheaper. And so, but that then created this situation with assimilation schools. And so literally until 1977, the year Star Wars came out, the United States just went on reservations and took children when they are five years old and sent them off to boarding schools, sometimes on the other side of the country. And that was legalized. That was legalized uh, in common practice on most res- or all reservations? Pretty much until 1977. Wow. Though not always, like on some reservations, you went to the high school in town. Some reservations, you went to a boarding school on the other side of the country. It just it depended, and a lot of them were um, organized and carried out by whatever uh, religious charity was in the area. So, if it was the Jesuits, they'd send you to a Jesuit place. If it was the Catholics, they'd send you to a Catholic place. So, was the pretense of morality behind that that they're saving these people? Yes, the the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right. Yeah. So they they came. In, I was just going to ask, like, how was that? Well, it was morally that, sound, and they're doing it under right. what they believe to be a morally sound. Absolutely, like, yeah, and it's that sort of a uh, you know, you have to kill the Indian to save the man. That's where that comes from, and then you know, uh, nobody. I don't know if everyone knows that term. Right, it sounds haunted. We're like that, that sounds that, horrifying, that, yeah. but that's what I grew uh, up with. But I don't like, know if people understand like where right. the maybe give a little context to that so, phrase. So when they start, when they shifted to the assimilation doctrine, that was basically how they sold it in Congress and to the public, like kill the Indian to save the man. Like we're going to literally beat out the Indian and the person. So they took, you know, they take four or five-year-old kid, they get to the school, they'd strip them their clothes and burn them, cut their hair, dress them in their uniform, and then every time they spoke their indigenous language would beat them. If they tried to run away, they'd beat them. Any, like until they spoke English. And what? so I'm tearing up. I'm like this tearing up over here. This is in the seventies. Well, it lasted until the seventies. So sure. it, it started. It started um, sort of tapering off in the late fifties into the sixties, and then the law that allowed the United States to do this was ended in 1977. Dude, I mean, because that that goes full circle to what I naively had written as a question about resorts and casinos on reservations that I believe might have been a good forum to introduce indigenous foods. Like you have this captive audience yeah, that goes, right? right? Like my family will go, a, lot, a big Asian American community will go. And For sure. You have a buffet littered with- I go to mine, man, yeah. Right, like yeah. you have pizza there, right? You have pasta, pho, Vietnamese, like everything you could want except indigenous food. Is that not the perfect forum for it? But now I see- like it getting stomped out over the years, like they didn't even know at that point what to present. It might not even be indigenous folks running that particular casino. Yeah, mostly, so, yeah. well, it was morally accepted and government sanctioned killing of a culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's shit. I mean that's that's. I, I mean I know we're talking about food technically <laughs> here, but but that's where that's why it's now a movement because you know one of the things about like the temperance movement, for instance, like one of the reason why uh, like 
our dances and our religion and our language and our culture was stamped out so thoroughly in the early 1900s, first half of the 20th century, because the, the temperance movement was like, that was, in their mind, the way for the devil to get in the country. So if we were doing that, it wouldn't make America as pure as it was. And, you know, these are also the same people who brought us prohibition. So fuck them for that, too. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is something I really want to help people get under the skin of, which I, I think is so important. And Zach does such a good job highlighting. You know, so if, if my culture is Italian and I want to make Italian food, well, my dad was Italian, so I have that reference point. And, and of course, Zach shared that reference point. His dad's indigenous. He has that reference point. But now let's look at the other reference points I had. I have, you know, a couple thousand years of Italian cooking tradition, which is completely intact in Italy. I also have a really strong American-Italian, Italian-American cooking tradition, which is really, really intact in, I mean, something, uh, Los Angeles has a great little Italy. There's a great little Italy in uh, San, Diego. San, Diego. San Diego. There's a great little Italy in New York. So I have all of these cultural touchstones that I can reference. And then I have, you know, probably the most famous food in the entire United States, which is a derivative of an, of an Italian food. Even your Domino's pizza is essentially Italian food. It is. You know, we, we joke and we say like, oh, that's not real Italian. And fine, it's not. But it's, it's, the touchstone is Italian, right? So that's what I see when I grow up. And so one of the interesting things, like when we hear about this guy, Sean Sherman, who's someone, you know, Zach is not, um, he, he's not like me in the sense that he doesn't gas himself up very much. He's perfectly happy to tell you guys like 3,000 years of indigenous history here on your podcast um, and, and not brag about what it takes to have all that knowledge. But, like, he was very early on this train of hyping up uh, Sean Sherman and Brian Yazzie and a couple of these chefs uh, in Minnesota. And as he did that, and as I started to follow along with it with him, and you say, like, this guy, Sean Sherman, who had this awesome truck called the Sous Chef um, and, and then is trying to turn it into a restaurant concept, and it's taken four or five years, and in the meantime, you know, like... Every white chef who ever experiments with Asian food for 45 minutes decides they can start a chain of 50, you know, pho restaurants. And you're like, why has it taken so long? Well, these indigenous chefs are not just chefs. You know, they're acting as excavators of a culture that Zach has now given you some insight into how it was stomped out. They're acting as anthropologists. They're having to go back and take what in, in some cases is, and correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, is mostly an oral tradition and trying to excavate that without the, the thing that you would have if you were doing it in England and say, like, oh, I have, like, this old book of things that we're all committed to writing. So it's the job of chef is actually really complicated and, yeah. and I mean, already complicated for all the chefs we know, but then has this extra couple layers on top of it. Yeah. And to add your, and not to cut you Please, off, Zach, but to add to your point, Steve, real quick, is Zach, in your, in your article when you interviewed Ben Jacobs of Tokabe, he specifically said that the food isn't clearly defined, the ingredients in many ways are but the genre of food, but the style of presentation, all those kind of things aren't there yet. What we do know of indigenous food was, and, and like we don't know how it was prepared necessarily or how it was served necessarily. Right. And the fact that you guys don't have yeah. that touch point, like I can't, I can't even, I can't even imagine. I know, like imagine going to Italy and them just being like, "Well, I guess we'll serve you a burger." <laughs> 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 yeah, 
your yeah. pasta with your hands. Or right, you like you knew that they had pasta, but you don't know what how they presented that, right? right? right. You don't know that they strained the noodles out from the water. Like we'd be yeah. slipping yeah. in with a straw yeah. if you didn't pasta have all those soup. touch points. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah, and that's also like I feel like I probably know more about Roman cuisine, like old Roman cuisine, than I do about my own, just simply because it's there to be studied. And just to piggyback off what Steve was saying and what you mentioned, what Ben said, is yeah, these guys and these ladies, they have to be historians, they have to be anthropologists, they have to be horticulturalists, they have to be philosophers, they have to make half this shit up as they go along. And then they're also, fighting is a bad word, but I'm they're pushing back against everyone else's food ways coming in and being like, this is how you make soup. This is how the sauce you put on this. These are the, the herbs you use. I mean, I give him shit all the time whenever we're cooking because he puts so much fucking parsley and basil and, you know, <laughs> rosemary and thyme, like, like, you know, old school Italian her- herbs in everything. And, you know, I'm on the other side and I'm, you know, using cedar branches and juniper berries. And it's sort of like, you know, one, you know, one botanical big flavor. And, uh, but that's just it. And and when you're in a society where there's a preconceived notion of, okay, this is the mother sauces. They're sacred. Learn how to do them, know them. Because I've I've worked in kitchens long enough and you have to, you have to know them to work in a kitchen. It doesn't even matter if you're working in a French kitchen. Whereas on the other side of that, like maybe, maybe we didn't fucking use sauces, you know, like, I don't know, but maybe we didn't. Like, I know through an anthropological text that we luckily got because of the New Deal with Franklin Roosevelt, an anthropologist came and lived on our tribe in the 1930s, wrote great stuff for us. So I got kind of lucky in the fact that I know we made, um, he called them Tawana olives, but we made them out of acorns. And so everybody's house in the front, they'd have this just big pot of acorns that are fermenting all year long. And you just, you know, pop a few in your mouth when you go in and out. We used acorn flour, things like that. I know how we prepared an elk after an elk hunt. You know, somebody would be there and they dig out a whole pit. And the first elk that you that you dressed would go in that pit. And that would cook while you dressed all the rest. And when you were done dressing all the rest, you'd eat that elk with everybody. You know, and so... Again, I'm kind of lucky. Like, I can go back to that anthropological text and find you know, some places where there's connective tissue Mm. and places to start from. But, you know, in a lot of honesty for a lot of the different groups around the United States, Canada, uh, especially the Caribbean, really especially, you got to make it up as you go along and kind of figure out, well, what could it be? What might it have been? What can it be? Because it's just gone is gone. Yeah, gone is gone. And some people, I mean... Other places are lucky, too. There's a lot of stuff on the Cherokee, for instance, because they had such a technologically advanced culture before they got ethnically cleansed from the American South. You know, they were already living in cities with, you know, newspapers and schools. And, you know, they had a very, you know, deeply intertwined culture with the American government to the point where they had integrated slavery into their society so that the Americans would like them more. And they're like, only 2% of them own slaves. But still, they were just like, hey, we're in. Let's do this together. Because like, you know, they looked at the long look. Like, you guys have been here for three, 400 years at this point. You're not going anywhere. So let's try to find a way to make this work. We'll do our thing down here in Georgia. You do your thing up there wherever in the Northeast. And we'll be fine. And the American government was like, well, no, we'd rather have all your land and all your, you know, all your resources. And so you have cases where you know, white 
American families would literally move into plantations that were built by the Cherokee and bring their slaves in. And so there's a little bit of uh, the Southern soul food culture was born out of the fact that these slaves had to cook with the kitchens that the Cherokees had already built. And so that's where, you know, you get the, the grinding of the corn and the sort of the whole roasting of animals. Like the Cherokee were roasting hogs, they were roasting, roasting venison, but the, the white people didn't want to eat venison. They wanted hogs because they brought hogs from home. And so, you know, the, that's why there's a lot of uh, connective tissue between American soul food and African-American food cultures of the South and the indigenous cultures that were ethnically cleansed because the material was already there. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, the white people weren't going to eat that food. Well, we'll eat it then. You know, we won't let the corn go to waste. We won't let the oysters go to waste. You know, we'll, the crabs, everything, you know, kind of became this wonderful blend of what's probably the most American food at this point. I mean, Southern American food feels very close. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have hominy and, you know, corn's still a big part and beans are still a big part and things like that. I mean, it's, it's obviously changed, but. Is the Cherokee's documentation the most vivid and clear and is it different based on region so do we know the most or do we see and hear the most about cherokee as an indigenous culture versus other ones that just aren't as documented thus that's what our biggest reference point yeah i never really know why you hear more about the trail of tears from the cherokee and not the long walk from the navajo Mm -hmm. no i mean they they happened within 20 years of each other they were both horribly violent acts of ethnic cleansing, um, maybe the Cherokee have better PR <laughs> and they get their story out more. But I mean, it's this sort of thing where there are so many stories like that of just horrific shit that happened to people across a continent that, you know, it, it's going to come to a few points where there can only be so much people are going to listen to. And we have to also take into account that who's writing, you know, the history books, you know, what we learn are a few sort of PowerPoint presentations on page 1, 7, and 18 out of 500-page PowerPoint. We learn the pilgrims. We learn maybe about the Trail of Tears. You might hear the name Crazy Horse in passing or Wounded Knee in passing. And then you hear about Ira Hayes and Iwo Jima. That's all that's in the history books. So it's the sort of thing where, you know, I wonder if rewriting the history books could even make that much difference because there it would just there's so much at this point, like where you would you'd almost need a whole other course to understand where you are. Like maybe the answer is you know you, you're living in Southern California, you just grow up with the stories of what happened here, you know, just to get a, a sense of where you are, and then that can also even play into the food. Like you get a sense of who these people were, what they ate, what's around you. And then you can live here more comfortably and, you know, make it your home as well. Not to, not to um, kind of, I'm not trying to like redirect us to food at all. I'm just using food as a prism to, to explain, I think, some of what Zach's saying in, a, in an interesting way is the sense that he's never been someone, and one of the things I like about him writing for us is he's never been someone who says, um, you know, everyone, everything needs to stop and get frozen in amber and indigenous food needs a chance to catch up. He understands, hey, that's the name of our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, he understands very deeply. Well, good night, everybody. <laughs> I'm going to close out right there. 
he understands very deeply this idea that food, as he said, you know, if you just look at the ingredient of corn, for example, has developed and evolved a- across the Americas, which is why Zach doesn't get pissed at me when I'm like, well, part of American food is nacho cheese. <laughs> Um, we actually both have uh, recipes in a cookbook coming out, and my recipe is American nacho cheese, and Zach's recipe is like a direct affront to mine, and it's like true American. It's an indigenous dish, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a huckleberry sort of sauce huckleberry for salmon. Yeah. And I think the, the guy who runs the cookbook was like, yeah, your buddy Zach's like says true American, and yours is American. And I was like, I know what he's doing. <laughs> but, but the point is he doesn't want things to freeze and I think no. that's really interesting and and with food I think that that's really fascinating because if you look at the Pacific Northwest where both Zach and I are from you know the salmon tradition still goes on there right and so so he doesn't he neither expects everyone to start cooking salmon the same way or to stop eating salmon because that's an indigenous ingredient oh, God, or to no. stop putting salmon in their fish tacos because those two things really didn't merge or whatever you know, his is always like that old maxim from uh, improv class. Yes, and. Right? <laughs> like, yes, cool, you developed your food way this way. Or it would make perfect sense that Japanese in America, w- who were in the Pacific Northwest for the most part, had this very strong attachment to salmon and, and this dish and how it would work and how what, what it would interface with. But also... Let's talk about how how my people did that. And I think that that's what's so interesting about this initiative and this and this project that he is a part of and that that a couple indigenous chefs are a part of because you know, I know speaking for the three of us and I know Zach is exposed to it too. There is this thing in food right now which is a little bit like, sorry, you don't get to do that. And and Zach's perspective is very much like, uh, just allow us to recover and keep doing it. Like, I'm sure as an indigenous person, like, at, from what I know of you, you'll probably be pretty excited when a mainstream obnoxious white dude feels comfortable enough with indigenous food to try and remix it with something because that would show that they've at least tried to learn at right. some point, hopefully. And plus, we're already doing that anyway. I mean, you know... Tacos are probably one of the most American foods there are. I mean, you know, the line we have now between our two countries is barely 150, 160 years old in reality. It's enforced for less than that, like 50 realistically. And, you know, these foodways of where we are right now in California are no different on the other side of that line, really. There's just different influences here. But right here, there were people eating food like that 5,000 years ago. You know, so that is indigenous here, and people are already remixing it. And right. it's just this idea is like, well, no, we need this border to be enforced in our minds. And so suddenly it becomes this other food from somewhere else. And, you know, I look at a chef like Brian Yatsi in, uh, in the Navajo, for instance. One of the things I love about him, he makes a blue corn braised elk tomatillo and chili taco. Mm-hmm. It's a taco, man. And it looks like a taco. Like you, we all have this connective tissue already. We already love this food. The difference is, is we're looking at it through a singular prism at the moment. And I kind of want to, what gets me so excited about indigenous cuisine and finding the food that's around you, around your home, is you can remix these things. You can take what's around you for the first time, really, ever, if we're being honest, in the history of this country, and eat American food. You know, like there's a difference between local and indigenous. Like just because I grow uh, cilantro 
in Denmark doesn't make it local, but I grow it there. Or if I'm growing Genovese basil in California, I'm sure it's, I'm growing it locally, but it's not indigenous to there. Not that it can't be grown there, don't get me wrong. But uh, it's this idea of, you know, we've missed out like 95% of the food around us. Like from the sea, from the land, you know, even from the air, if you want to count insects into that. And that kind of depresses me when I think about American cuisine, because when you think of American cuisine, you think of it being this big, broad, all-inclusive thing, but it's missing that one singular component. Like, I want to know how a bowl of ramen would have tasted had my people not lost their salmon as their economy, because I have a personal connection to that. My second great-grandfather actually used to sell salmon. He'd take his canoe from Arez all the way to Seattle and sell salmon to Japanese restaurants. And I have a letter from the BIA that I found in the archives of him writing the BIA and being like, hey, the cops won't let me off the dock and I have a right to sell this. Can I get a, a letter from you saying I have a right to sell it? And so what I want to know is like, I know he probably got a bowl of noodles when he arrived there because it's a goddamn like four hour boat ride, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so I want to know like, he probably, you know, he would have come home and, you know, we use seaweed, we have soups. We, you know, noodles aren't that f far away. We could use acorn flour instead of buckwheat or, or uh, wheat flour. And then, yeah, the salmon, the oysters, the, you know, all of those elements are there. And just that little turn of like, okay, just like, uh, you know, you, you have literally pulpetti and spaghetti pomodoro becomes spaghetti and meatballs, you know, when it gets to New York. You know, that's what I'm sort of like, that's what we're missing. We're missing that you know, these iconic dishes that we could have had, but then we still can have. Like I tell Steve every time we talked about this, is like the future of American food is in its past, mm. you know, and we just got to get there. One of, the, one of the classifications that I found really helpful when reading your writing, Zach, was uh, reservation food versus non-reservation food. Right. Um, I was wondering if yeah. you could go into that a bit just because previous in the pod you already talked about, I mean, the literal government sanctioned stamping, stamping out of a culture. In your articles, you write of, you know, if tribes had to use government sanctioned cheese, well, they used it because that's the food that they had. Um, but can you give us a description on like what definitions of reservation and non-reservation food are to you and examples right. of people doing it? So the, the biggest, most obvious is fry bread. That is a survival food. That's a reservation food. So they're actually in the Smithsonian, in one of the art galleries, there are paintings of the colonists coming over and taking away all the agricultural products from the indigenous people and giving them turnips and cabbages and just hogs and taking away, you know, goats and stuff like, stuff like that. So this was going on before America. Um, and then when the United States came along and put people on reservations, the reservations tended to be the land that was unusable. And in some cases, uh, completely disastrous. So where fry bread specifically came from and why it's a reservation food is that during the long walk when Lincoln sent the Navajo off their lands and Kit Carson came and just destroyed their entire nation, literally plowed the fields of their agriculture so that they could never be used again, burned all their irrigation system, marched them, you know, 700 miles into New Mexico, into the uh, town where Billy the Kid was shot, ironically, and um, basically put them on a piece of land, a, a concentration camp, and uh, like, we're like, okay, here, this is where you can all live, and, you know, it flooded, it got attacked by locusts, and so they could not grow their own food literally could not grow their own for four years they were stuck here and so what they got they got wheat flour lard 
a bit of sugar, a bit of coffee. And you'd get your staple once a week, and you had to make that last. If you went out hunting off the reservation, they probably shot you dead. So you made that last, and that became their sort of staple. And then after about, I think by 1868, so this might have been like six years into it, this was such a disaster and costing so much money for the U.S. government to keep these people alive on this concentration camp. They're like, okay, you can all go fuck back home. And that's one of the only times an indigenous community got all of their land back. And that's why the Navajo reservation or the Navajo nation is a quarter the size of Arizona. Because they were just like, just take, just take it back. But the problem is they got back and everything had been destroyed. And so the, the fry bag sort of staple became the only way to survive. Um, because they're an agricultural society. I mean, most of these people were agricultural societies. You know, the hunter-gatherer ideal is only a very small group of people in the plains who were agricultural societies until the uh, disease wiped them out in the 1500s. Um, so reservation food became the food you survived on. It was the government cheese, the government coffee, fry bread that you made from the government flour. And simply because a lot of the places where these uh, nations, these uh, these tribes were put on these reservations. It was it was so far away from their land that they lived on anyway. I mean, Georgia's a long ass way from Oklahoma, and it's a completely different climate, temperate. I mean, it, it's just completely different. And so, you know, imagine now for any of us, had uh, just being dropped in the middle of Russia. You know, there's nothing there, like, and you have no idea what anything is around you. And then that's life. I mean, that's what the Cherokee had to deal with when they got to Oklahoma. And uh, amazingly, because they still had a bit of money, the Cherokee actually sent a ridiculous amount of money to the Irish who were being starved out during the potato famine. And there's still this huge monument in Ireland to the Cherokee who sent them all this money, even after they were ethnically cleansed to Oklahoma. Um, because food was such a, a crucial part of life. I mean, and then, you know, the, you know, the it's just this weird thing, man, where once it's gone, you know, it's hard to get back. And so that's where the reservation food becomes a thing where it's, you're in food desert. My reservation has a casino, doesn't have a grocery store. The only place to buy food is at the goddamn gas station or you drive 15 miles into town to Walmart. And so indigenous food then becomes the food that you had before the reservation, but the food that's around you, the food that you can forage, it's the wild game, the wild fish. It's, you know, not industrially farmed. It's not, you know, factory farm meat. It's stuff that you can get yourself that is what is local to you. So what stories can you tell? What stories should we be telling? What is helpful to move forward? When you, for example, right. I, you know, how do we help doing, <laughs> from a food beast perspective? I, you know, is, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know if that's what you meant, Eli, I, I, but that's, yeah, that's pretty much where I'm going. Well, I yeah. mean, it just, Basically seeing the literature online about this, you know, BuzzFeed will have a video, why people try and Native American food for the first time. Right. Of course, fry bread is up there. Yeah. But now having this context, does a video like that do anything justice? Does it move anything forward? Is it better yes. than not? Yes and no. I mean, it, it's a double-edged sword. Having fry bread in there is going to get a lot of people pissed off because a huge part of the indigenous food movement is fuck fry bread. We don't want that shit anymore. It's terrible for our health. Mm -hmm. It's terrible for our kids. It's, we're done having to eat your food. But fry bread is still a massive part of reservation culture. I mean, there are shirts, you know, with, with you know, where's the fry bread? You know, there's, there's me, a million memes about it. So it's still part of the culture. But it's also like, eh, 
it's not really our food. Beef's not ours. Iceberg isn't ours. You know, red, um, red onion isn't ours. And the wheat, sure shit, isn't ours. Um, but people would be shocked at what is indigenous, right? Like, right. I almost wanted to interrupt at some point. I was going to try to make a joke, but I was like, I feel like we're on delicate ground. <laughs> but I was going to be like, well, Zach, one one group of people who don't ever uh, need indigenous support is the Italians, which is a long jo- joke between Zach and I, because right. what? A lot of people don't know this. Yeah, like what would, it, what would Italy be without the tomato? So tomatoes yeah. aren't from Italy. We did from? not. They're from the indigenous people of America. Yeah. Tomatoes were brought back to Italy by Christopher Columbus. Yeah, right. Wow. And just like, you ready for a couple more? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Drop, drop yeah, a few yeah, more yeah, on these yeah, guys. Yeah. Drop a few more. Yo, there's some great ones. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah seriously. <laughs> I'm not going to do the freestyle. <laughs> but, like, potatoes. Uh, no, but yeah, potatoes. I mean, all types of potatoes, squash, pumpkin. You know, think about Thai food or Indian food without chilies. I mean, chilies are from South America, and they were taken there by the Portuguese. Uh, you know, so you uh, think about Switzerland or Germany without chocolate, without cacao. You know, just these things were like corn has completely changed the world. Everywhere you go in this world now, you get popcorn. You know, and so these little things where you don't really think about it often, but I literally can't imagine, you know, Italian food without tomatoes. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I love spice. Like I'm a hardcore spicy guy. When I go, when especially if I'm traveling through anywhere in Southeast Asia or South Asia, you know, I, I go as hard as I can, and then I kind of sit back and wonder, like, what's going on here before this? Then, and uh, you know, there's other things. Avocados. I mean, Delphin developed in Mexico over 5,000 years ago. And imagine the rest of the world without avocado toast, man. <laughs> yeah. What would Australia think? We'd, 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 we'd freak out. I know a lot of girls who would die. Yeah. They would just be dead on the street. But, you know, San Francisco, yeah. a lot of girls. There's a long, long list of uh, cultural or agricultural products that came that were only in the United States from things like fucking strawberries, which I can, don't really think about, um, to huckleberries, to uh, a certain amount of uh, aromatics. There was a study done, I want to say five or six years ago, I think I sent it to you, where 60 to 70% of the world's agricultural products stem from North and South America that are used today. And so these two continents had that big of impact that the entire rest of the fucking world's ingredients only make up that 30%. Why that's so crazy to me is because I'm going to instantly contrast that with the only food that I knew of an um, American indigenous culture was fry be- bread. And now I know that fry bread was attached to this painful narrative of relocating uh, Native Americans into, it was from Arizona into New Mexico, right? Yeah, right. So that's just, that's so devastating to me. The one, the one thing that I, ha- and I interacted it, uh, interacted with it. I was at Cal State Long Beach and, and they had uh, they had an indigenous uh, festival, and that was one of the only foods that they served there. And so I had obviously no idea. I'm trying things that are there, but I think to now know that food came from like that moment in history, I understand why there's a duality behind it because it's such a painful duality. So I sort of uh, I got myself a bit of an out. Uh, there's a Hungarian dish called langos which is basically exactly the same thing. It's a deep-fried p- p- 
piece of bread that's made with baking powder and they put a whole bunch of shit on top of it. And uh, there's a Christmas market near my house and I always go and get one every year because it's just like, oh, I just might get my fry bread fixed and I don't have to call it fucking fry bread. <laughs> it's Hungarian langos. Well, and I mean, I know I'm, I'm drumming this point a little too hard and most of the times, you know, I, I try not to be like, um, you know, like the white dude who's like, wokeness can go too far. Like, I think that's really obnoxious when every white male on the planet Earth only wants to talk about wokeness run amok and never wants to talk about how we can actually be a more sensitive planet and, and more considerate. With that, with that said, I think one of the interesting things about this resurgence of indigenous food is that there there is such little sense of rejection, right? So Takabe, uh, a restaurant that Zach and I both like and get behind, we put out a piece that said um, we ranked it the number one fast casual restaurant in the world that we felt could could take over for Chipotle, could get that big. And Zach and I were kind of arguing, as you know, any writer and editor do online, about um, if we want to highlight one dish from them, should it be their bison ribs, which is a more traditional, more indigenously traditional dish, and, um, or should it be what I voted for, which was their, their Indian taco, which is a piece of fry bread covered with other aromatically spiced meats. And, and we discussed this, and it's interesting how Takabe does a good job of pulling together different flavors and saying, well, we don't need to actually reject this completely. No. We can have complicated feelings. The article of, of Zach's that, that I've always been the most proud of is this piece that he wrote about fried bread where he writes about his complicated feelings and then also writes about the fact that as we all know, like dough fried in oil with some sugar on top tastes, tastes good, good. Shit. It's, it's amazing. It's correct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's like, it, that's so interesting to me. And I think such an interesting point um, as you talk about this process is that there is always, has always been so little rejection in you. And, and it, it could come from perhaps the saddest place, which is the fact that indigenous food in America has been marginalized so dramatically for so long that the community of chefs and food writers is like god give us something and we're not going to reject it i don't know if that's how you feel well and also there's it's so broad man like i you know i come from pacific northwest in a very specific salish community where we had specific culture food ways so i don't feel at all like i'm even in anywhere good position to talk about the seminal in florida man to me that's like Ireland to Iran in Europe, distance-wise, like literally distance-wise, and culture-wise as well. So there's so many other people you can talk to, you can follow on Twitter or Instagram, uh, who are going to talk about their food in their part of the country. Like, you know, I try to follow chefs that are in Seattle because they're cooking food up there, and that's sort of what I get to, where, you know, I also follow chefs who are, you know, in, in Arizona or in Toronto or where have you, but that's more for ideas and support than it is like, well, you know, the food ways that, you know, someone like Chesin Nottaway, who's up in Ontario in the backcountry, sorry, Quebec even in the backcountry, you know, the way she's going to be cooking it's going to be similar to a cooking style, but she's cooking completely different fucking food up there uh, to where I would be. I mean, they're in deciduous forests. I'm in coniferous forests, for instance. You know, we I have the Pacific Ocean. She has the St. Lawrence and the Hudson Bay. You know, they have a huge seal and whaling culture up there. We have the whaling culture, but we just don't have seals. We have walruses, but that's different again. So it's uh, just 
there are that then of course there are through lines. We have venison, moose, elk, bear. Those are similarities. Um, you know, but again, I, I'm not from there. I'm not Algonquin. You know, I didn't grow up in that culture. So for me, I, I step back and I'm just like you know, I can talk about me, man. I can talk about my experience. But you know, for so many other people. You, you, you got to kind of go to them. Thinking as like a macro media guy, does it take like a health wave to carry yeah. a diet into yeah. into fruition? Like yes. seriously, like no, so. I, I that's what I kind of go on is the fact that if when once people catch on, especially on Instagram and Twitter, that this diet is it's basically dairy free, mm-hmm. it's basically processed sugar free, mm-hmm. it's anti factory farming, it supports communities that are you know making their own agriculture so there's a you know that factor to it it's a s- sustainable it, it can be keto it can be vegan very easily because of the three sisters you know corn beans and squash that all grow together you you just made a taco with uh, beans and pumpkin in it you know, yeah. throw in some aromatics and some spices. That's a vegan taco. I do think what we could yeah. do is like good PR around this like because right. the idea of of having giving a better name to a paleo diet or giving a better right. name to a keto diet and making it more fun. Cause talk, talk about like scavenging, like talk about if I'm, I'm here in downtown Santa Ana, we're all here. Could I eat anything around here that I'm not thinking about? What I think to carry on Eli's point too is scavenging from a restaurant perspective is all the rage, right? right? Like if you, if you go forage before each nightly session, you're touted and you're on the cover of Food and Wine magazine, but at the same time, aren't they just doing the exact thing your culture would have been doing if it wasn't stamped out by our government? Except I think they're just literally. calling it farm to table. That contrast <laughs> is so funny to me because that's literally the epitome of restaurant culture now is, oh, I'm local. We talk, we yeah. already talked about local and I, go, I, and I went to forage this yeah. and I didn't, it's not FDA approved. It's something that I went out and got. Yeah. I'm just curious about what, how you feel about that, knowing that the original foragers of this land are Look, from your culture. Man, like, we're not going to change history. History is history. You know, for me, I come at it from the point is we should all have been doing this in the first place. So anyone who's coming to it now, great. But also just learn your shit first because there are things out there that are not safe to eat, especially where I come from. I come from the Pacific Northwest. I grew up, you know, getting mushrooms out of the woods every year. And I knew I just grew up with the knowledge of knowing which ones to get. So whenever friends would come up to visit, we'd go out to our to our property that's out in the forest and we you know, we get huckleberries, we'd get chanterelles, we'd go down to the Skoke River and, and hook a steelhead, go home, put all that together and you have a meal. Right. You know, or you can go out in the forest and find a mushroom that is going to fucking kill you. Like, not even get you high fun, kill you. <laughs> you know? And so I am all for this idea of, like, let's, what, let's, what, let's eat what is around us. Because that's what we should be eating anyway. When you go to Italy, you know, it's regional to the point where you'll get an Emilia-Romagna Parma restaurant in Sicily that's pretty much as touristy as getting one here because it's just not their, you know, they have what they have in Sicily. They have what they have up there. They both love each other and everybody's happy, but it's different. Just like, you know, yes, go out and forage. Please do. But please, please know what the fuck you're doing because it's sort of a, you know, and that's, again, 
do that, follow indigenous chefs. Find indigenous chefs in your local area, follow them, you know, get horticultural books from Amazon uh, because all those books are still there that were written in the 70s that, you know, I sort of grew up with that you always had on your shelf was like, what can I eat in the forest? Get one on Amazon. They're like 20 bucks, you know? You've kind of brought it back to the indigenous chefs. And in the beginning of the podcast, uh, a comment really stayed with me was you'll see one cookbook on the shelf in your bookstore and there's one two-unit restaurant in Denver that actually has a brick and mortar and that's the upper echelon of examples of indigenous chefs. Do investors, do developers, do people inherently with money or not, do they not see the value of backing these indigenous chefs yet and also potentially because um, they don't have access to the same levels of funding? I'm, I'm just yeah. like, what's the or- next step for indigenous chefs? Because if it's going to take four to five years to create a restaurant concept and get, you know, I don't know if that how long that's going to work and, right. and not to go on a diatribe, but to know that these chefs have to be anthropologists on top of being chefs, on top of being restaurant owners, where you have to be the marketer and the salesperson and the customer service. That's insanely difficult. And so what do you see as the next frontier and how does it get there knowing that restaurants take an, a ton of capital to start and also take ingenuity to maintain? So two things, and I'll try to keep it short. First thing is a lot of these chefs and people are, are coming together in groups. So you have groups like iCollective where there are artists, chefs, ethnobotanists, uh, seed preservers who are all working together. And so everybody sort of has their role and they can make things move a little more quickly because you have the people to work with. Uh, Sean Sherman with Sous Chef does the same thing. He has an ethnobotanist. He has a manager. You know, he has somebody who runs a food truck, and he's you know working on the ground, going to the Mad Symposium, you know, to get his name out there. Are these for profit or nonprofit? Um, both are Sous Chef. Well, the natives, his um, his kitchen is nonprofit, and I Collective is nonprofit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Although, God, I hope they're for profit soon. Like, right. <laughs> that's what, if there's right. anyone who should be making money right. off a bunch of people wanting to eat their food, it would be the indigenous community. Right. One um, thing I just want—that's like, important, though. I think right. it should be. Like, yeah, again, well, I, I agree. Agree. it's, it's coming. Yeah, models, it's coming. But, because right, I just don't want every indigenous chef right. in the world to have to be like. Also, we're going to need you to do this nonprofit. <laughs> right. Well, also, like Sean, like even with Sean Sherman, the sous chef, he's opening up a fine dining establishment in Minneapolis, so that's coming. Okay. But the other end of it is just fucking racism, man. Like, one of the reasons I don't live in this country, because every time I go to get a job, be like, oh, you're, you're an Indian from the res, you're just going to be drunk all the time. Wow. You know, like, getting a loan in a bank is, you know, fucking, I've had... I I've assume had, from a marginalized community next to impossible. Right. Yeah, I've had, uh, like, loan officers just for, like, something small, like a car, be like, oh, can't you just get the money from your reservation? Don't you guys have money from the casino? And be like, what does that have to do with fucking anything, man? I need a fucking like car loan, you know. And so I can't even imagine like walking into a bank and being like, hey, I need 1.2 mil on the barrel, and uh, I'm going to start off this cuisine you've never even fucking heard of, that has no contextual issues. I can't send you anywhere but basically up rocks to read about it. <laughs> right. And um, right. you know, uh, I mean, it's just not a reality. I mean, there's the systemic and depth of the racism against 
the indigenous community in this country is almost unbelievable. Like, especially because I live away from it now. So when I come back, like, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, I remember why I left. <laughs> that really shook me. You know, I don't know if I've told you this about the Food Beast crew, but you guys have been involved in the incubation of so many restaurants and, and have talked to entrepreneurs. And that's very much a side of, of what you all do as far as the conversations you like to start. And it pains me. It's not something actually of all the conversations we've had I've really heard you say where it's like, do imagine walking into a lone a loan office. I mean, even me, with all the privilege that I have, I, I get scared walking into a, a loan office. And now saying, I need this money. You have these institutionalized ideas about who me and my people are, and you've never heard of what I'm trying to do. That is, you know, it's really scary and, and obviously something that we want to fight for. One thing I, I want to add, you guys talked about like this diet aspect of indigenous food. One of the greatest things about my job is that, you know, Zach can tell me what's what. And then I just go like, well, I, I'll just eat it. <laughs> I'm not going to, you keep intellectualizing it. That's good. That's part of your job. And I'll just, and he's doing such a great job with it. I will tell you, um, you know. You guys have seen this, obviously. I think I think Food Beast is very much responsible for for creating much of how we communicate about food on the internet. Oh, and respect. I, no, very yeah. much. I, I mean, I credit you guys to that to such a high degree. Oh, for real, yeah. And you know, in in that sense, and stealing a pl page from the Food Beast playbook, when Zach said, uh, you know, we uh, you should be writing about indigenous food. That's not really a thing you know how to write about for the internet until you until you put it within the context of like you want to really get woke. This is the next food thing, right? And then it really works, right? And and it's yeah. really worked. Yeah, and you were, then, really want to talk about sustainability? Let's talk about sure. sustainability through wild food. You and want to talk about the environment? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, it takes a conversation like this to even be able to talk about it because Steve's right. been telling me about this for so long. Like, right. like, probably since I've known you. Like, Just yo, regurgitating stuff I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, dude, we need to talk about indigenous food. Like, we right. need to be on the podcast, and we need to we need to shine light on it. And I'm like, cool, 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 cool. Like, when someone walks up to me, he's like, you need to shine more light on Mexican American food here in California. Very easy. Right. I can now Google find, or I can ask a Mexican American, yeah. like, where should I send people? Because that's the mouthpiece we have. Yeah. I can be like, this place is dope. Go there. Well, I, I, after Steve tells me this, I'm like, let me do a little bit of research. Right. I hop on Google. I don't have any restaurants I can send people oh, to. Oh, cool restaurant in Denver. Yeah. Right, right, right. Right. Oh, maybe I'll send them to the Palace Casino. I've been there. That buffet is cracking. <laughs> there's no one. There's nothing there. Like, I can't. And correct me if I'm wrong. Are there, like, we had nowhere to send people. That was the big There thing. is nowhere, especially in this area, man. So It's just. Yeah, it's a ghost town. So the very beginning of it is having this conversation so we can unfold and uncut, like get layers. Later, Steve. Steve has to run, but I appreciate this guy so much. Shout out. Bye, Steve. Steve. Thanks for having me, guys. You guys are the best. Uh, I hope that I hear tonight via text that you had this conversation for another two hours. <laughs> no, it's so important. One last thing I want to say as I'm walking out the door, getting further and further from the mic. You guys are talking about or you did talk about like the keto aspect of this food and that is all cool. But as a person who takes a lot of Zach's recommendations, the food is awesome too. You know, um, the number one thing, anytime you go to Oregon, there's two things you see in the airport. I'm from Oregon. Zach's from Pacific Northwest also. Two things you see in the airport. One, you see everyone with their box from Voodoo Donuts, right? It's a, per it's a pink box, very distinctive. The other you see is a green package. It's smoked salmon, cedar, yeah. cedar plank smoked salmon. That is this really rich, fatty, unctuous smoked salmon. 
It's not, I mean, I'm sure actually it is keto, but it's also like a fatty, rich food that tastes delicious. Mm -hmm. Cedar plank smoked salmon is an indigenous food yes. from so we get the Pacific support. Northwest. Yeah, yeah so, so that is an example of how something, people don't even know that it has that connection, but that food is good mm -hmm. and it's rich. And, it, you know, right now our whole world food way is dominated by what's the most tasty, right? What's gushy? What could go on on the food beast gram and get pulled apart and look sexy as hell? Yeah. And and that food, the food that Zach is advocating for, has that aspect too. Yo, Mike. <laughs> Later, Steve. Go buy Steve's books. Look them up. Steve Bermucci. Uh, on everywhere books are sold. But, yeah, I mean, it takes a conversation like this to even unfold it. So now that we understand, well, do we have to understand diet? Do we have to, every time we talk about it, we need to have these layers of context for yeah. folks. And look, I'll, I'll sell the diet aspect right now. So about six, seven months ago in July, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go all in with this sort of thing. Because I'm lucky I live in Germany, so I have access to wild game, mm -hmm. and wild seafood, and a lot of foraging and stuff like that. And I fucking, I can even get wild rice there. And so my, I changed up my diet. I started fasting for 18 hours a day. Nice. I just straight up do wild proteins greens, wild rice a couple times a week, throw in some beans every now and then, seasonally do squash, corn, things like that. And I've lost 100 pounds since July. What? So. Whoa. Like, yo, I can vouch that by going into this diet and just focusing in on stuff that's wild and stuff that's around you, one, you're more sustained. I mean, I make wild rice now and you need like a quarter of that stuff and, you know, because it's just, it's heftier. It's, it's, bigger and uh yeah man so it it, it definitely has all those all of those aspects i mean i got to be strict i strict but i'm not that strict i just went to italy two weeks ago uh for a short trip to bologna and i ate whatever the fuck i wanted yeah, for three days yeah, yeah did, I, did I, before and after picture um probably somewhere <laughs> yeah right now, but i'm just curious that's yeah. the marketing we're gonna do that's <laughs> yeah. that's a beautiful but, beautiful it, stuff but, and so the thing is for me is you can find the food like you know you can find bison you can find wild fish in the supermarkets you can you can have a wild lifestyle through razor clams you know butter clams oysters crab all that stuff's from here or around here and you can get it at a grocery store generally um sometimes it's farm-raised salmon instead of wild sockeye but still it's not impossible to have wild foods and uh, for me a big part of it is getting away from the fucking factory farming system because it's just I mean, it's not as bad where I live, but, you know, it's just something that uh, you, you just feel better. Like when you look at, uh, I have a friend, she actually runs a uh, grass-fed cattle ranch in Virginia. And she was showing me, like, when you look at a piece of beef from an industrial farm compared to a piece of beef from a grass-fed natural farm, it doesn't even look the same under a microscope. So, of course, that's going to make you feel better, feel different, feel, you know, it's going to process through your body differently, so you need less of it and things like that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not... A, I'm not a chef, you know, like Sean Sherman, but, you know, he has an ethnobotanist on his staff who looks at things that way. Like, you know, what is this actually going to do for your body? Because it's from the wilds, not from a fucking plastic container from Costco, you know. And so obviously not everyone can just fucking rush out in the fields and start, you know, picking everything they need to make a salad because, you know, the information isn't there and the space isn't really there for everybody. But... That doesn't mean we can't start growing more of this shit because it's the agriculture from here. See what I'm kind of get what I'm getting at there? Yeah, I, I totally get what you're getting at. And I'm Chef Sean Sermon keeps keeps coming up 
Yeah. Well, he's sort of the the forefront of this movement. Totally. Yeah. And and why and why I'm bringing that up just once again is it feels like that this moment might be in his hands in relation to his. You said it was a brand new fine dining restaurant in Minnesota, yeah. I believe. Coming about a year from now. I mean, that's gonna that's a very that's a very big moment, right? Because yeah. um, if there isn't that level of dining anywhere in the country, because Eli, when we talk about restaurants, it's 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 funny, Zach, and you probably do this too in the Uprox newsroom. But I don't know how much like we we do a ton of restaurant coverage specifically. Right. So every morning we're typically fielding some sort of hey, this restaurant's doing this. Hey, this restaurant is doing that. Where are we sending video and editorial teams? The story of indigenous food would have such a differentiator if we ever got pitched that, right? Right? Because instead of the latest dessert craze that we're getting pitched constantly or that we see on IG, this the fact that there's a scarcity also means that there can be a very impactful moment once it's ready to debut. But then at the same time, though, there that has to be lots of pressure on Chef Sean because... There's no one in the country doing it, right? There's no yeah. blueprint. This is just you. And if you don't succeed as a chef, if your business model wasn't right, if the food was great but something doesn't work, there's a lot of people hanging their hat on this on this concept, I would assume, not not being of of the culture at all. But I, I'm just trying to imagine if there was – you know, never a Japanese American chef, and this was the one of the first times in decades that they were creating a restaurant that happened to be of that culture. God, yeah, the, like the incredible amount of, pride, the too, amount of weight. Like, I'm just yeah. thinking about it right now. Like, if if my mom's culture was suppressed in the same way your father's culture was suppressed, like I eat. I mean, the amount of Japanese influence in, cult, in um, just an American food culture is oh, yeah. just insane. Like, imagine that that was suppressed. Mm. What a different and less colorful world we'd be in. And so I will do everything in my power to help us support that restaurant because I just want to learn about it. Like, I don't know anything. And I don't know. Now I'm rambling because I'm just excited. No, that's good, man. I'm excited, too. And there he's opening up his um, indigenous food lab this summer. Uh, which is going to just bring in kids off the rest so they can learn the restaurant industry. And also anybody can sort of come there and try the food and sort of as an introduction of sorts to what this is going to be. I mean, again, in Canada, we sort of have this already. Um, so there's a Joseph Shawana in Toronto at Kumkum, um, who's doing amazing stuff. Uh, there's Richard Curtis in Saskatchewan, who's actually just starting a, a series called Red Chef Revival, where he's going around Canada talking to indigenous chefs, doing different things. Um, but again, it, that's you know, it's still it's still a very small level. Uh, but yeah, but what I like what you said there is like the colors. Like yeah, that's what I think about this food is we're just going to add some more colors to the American food ways, and that's never a bad thing, right? That's always good. Yeah. Just, I'm. S- Starving. I know. <laughs> I've also never had. I've never had elk. I haven't had the pleasure. So there's a lot of foods that have also been described that I'm so curious about, just because right. we've mentioned them on the pod. And yeah. there are also, I mean, there probably are different cultures that might prepare elk that I don't know. But I don't know of that many. And so it's just one of those things where anytime I have a chance to dive into a new culture through its restaurant, I'm just so giddy because I I could order everything. 
Yeah, it's right? a good moment too because you hear Rogan talk about this on his on his podcast a lot, and it's every meal is elk. Yeah, right, I mean, and, and he's finding these things. And that's how I grew up. I I didn't really realize how spoiled I was growing up because my dad and my uncle and my my family are all hunters, so we were in the Pacific Northwest hunting elk, deer, bear, and then my dad also was a fisherman, so he'd go out and snag halibut and salmon, and you know he would pull up prawn traps and crab pots and collect oysters, and so I just grew up with this shit. I mean, I had so much fucking salmon growing up, I got sick of it by the time I was ten years old, you know. So, like, it took me a while to come back to it where I was just. Like, can we have anything but salmon? You know, can we have, but uh, you know, I, you, it's not so much you get a taste for it. It's just, um, it's just a part of your life when you're in that culture. But still, a lot of the ways we were preparing it when I was growing up was through the lens of European cuisine. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so what interests me now is like, you know, what, how can I prepare it now that's not through that lens? And so one of the things I make at home uh, a lot is I'll do a, a venison tejano chili, which is just the old school what they used to do down in Texas where you, you grind up some dried peppers, you throw it in some venison broth, and you braise that venison off until it gets melt in your mouth tender, and you have this sort of just wonderful umami spicy base, and I make a uh, just a corn, like a regular cornbread, but I just put cheese in it, a buffalo, I get buffalo cheese, I put that in it, and just grill it off until it's nice and crisp, and you just dip that in there, man, and you're done. You're selling me. Yeah, You're selling I am me, Zach. Sold. We're, we're sold. <laughs> oh my where, god. Where can where can people learn more about uh, the series that you've been writing on and what's to come? So I started a section called Indigenous Life at Uproxx, and so it's just uproxx.com slash Indigenous Life. And uh, I generally try to interview chefs there as often as I can. Sometimes we talk about other indigenous issues, like I wrote about the Redskins once or you know, something stupid that Elizabeth Warren said, shit like that. Uh, But I try to keep it more food-focused. And then otherwise, I spend a lot of time on Twitter just trying to highlight Indigenous voices and Indigenous chefs. And so you can find me there at ZTP underscore Johnston. And I also travel a lot and try to put some of my food up on Instagram whenever I'm making venison or I cook a lot of kangaroo as well that I got it into. So... Stuff like that pops up on there. You're going to be my new Instagram follower. I feel it. I, feel it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of our audience tends to be in California. Right. Is Would you say that Denver's potentially the closest like indigenous meal that you could just go up and purchase? Um, or, I mean, I know that, you know, we could get the Sean Sherman cookbook and there, there's that aspect of it. Right. Um, but based on what you know, are there certain parts of the country that you would recommend that you at least know have uh, indigenous food culture where people can purchase it and support it? Yeah, I'd say drive through Navajo Nation. You know, a lot more people are doing taco tacos now, not Indian tacos. And so there's a, a bit of the culture shift there. Also around Taos, Pueblo, New Mexico, um, there's a few places. We're actually in like a, in a hotel Oh, his name escapes me now. God damn it. Sorry. Um, But there's a hotel. There's a guy doing a little bit of indigenous food in the hotel kitchen. So you still can get, you know, like your fucking Hilton burger. But on like Sunday nights, he'll do some some local stuff. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, for just like a walk up, Tokabe is your best bet. Um, There's a food truck in Seattle called Off the Res, but they mostly just do fry bread riffs. So they'll do like a fry bread Bryson burger, which again... 
you know, still tasty. Of, still tasty. Also, still part of the culture. So you know, I, I'm I'm not going to diss that too hard. And uh, you know, you're supporting indigenous folks, so that's the thing. I would also say, jumping off of what Steve said, um, I'm I'm trying to form an article right now about driving around the Olympic Peninsula, like looking for the best smoked salmon, because on every reservation you go to, there's always smoked salmon huts, but they're all a little bit different in how they do it, just because you know you go to the Macaw, they're out on the Pacific Ocean, whereas you know over where I am on the inland seas of the Hood Canal, you know it's a little bit different fish. Um, because it still had trout instead of like Pacific salmon and, you know, you got different smoke, different people doing different things. And so, you know, if you're on a reservation or driving through a reservation, just look for food that isn't familiar. Like don't stop at the place where the burger is. Stop at the place where they're advertising smoked whitefish or smoked oysters or maybe even elk tacos. You never know. You know, you know, they tend to put signs out what they're cooking that day. And that's kind of your chance to get into it. Um, you know, like if, if you follow somebody like Brian Yazzie, he's traveling around the country all the time doing pop-ups. And he brings with him uh, elk, moose, venison, aromatics, beans, blue corn. And he'll go do a pop-up. At a, he'll come out to California or go out to Illinois or you know, Texas. And he'll be at a show. You know, and he'll be doing cooking his food, and sort of right now, that's one of the biggest ways is you got to kind of follow these guys to see where they're popping up. Could you could you make an introduction to Brian so we could do a food beast pop up with him? Because absolutely, the fact that we can't get any of this, okay, I will will it to be. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 I will yeah. I will make sure we are at least the food beast staff and some of our local friends can can try it because yeah. now. Now I want it, and right. I'll be looking well, at flights to Denver. Now that uh, Steve isn't here to defend himself, like I was telling you, when I'm ever using like the uh, you know like the cedars and stuff like that or pine branches, I'll uh, whenever Brian Yazzie does something like that on his Instagram, I'll send it to Steve and see like, see, see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making this up. This is legit. Yeah, yeah right. But I'm at not... the same time, we're also still paving as we go. Like that's that's yeah. that's the whole that's the magic behind it. Absolutely, and it's also you know. Just I might be a broken record now, but for me, it's just about. I'm curious. Half of it is curiosity. Like I kind of want to know, you know, what we're missing out on and what's going to happen next. Like I, I'm kind of looking forward to like the kid who opens up a place here in L.A. and does the opposite of fucking what Roy Choi did. You know, awesome. where he where he takes Korean food and filters it through an indigenous mm. filter. You know. And, you know, I, I love Roy Choi's food, man. I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Koji. Don't get me wrong. I'm not dissing him in any way. But I can't wait for You want to see the reverse yeah. osmosis of that? Yeah. Like, I what just, it would actually be? Yeah, because I, I love those cuisines, man. Let's, let's fucking party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good note. That's a good end note. I love it. Zach, really appreciate your time and, and putting uh, us in there. Guys, thank you so much. I've been a fan ever since you launched, so... It's, it's an honor to be here. Whoa. Thanks, actually. Honor to have you. Yeah. Woo. All right, guys. Thank you again so much for listening. Hope you learned something fun today. Um, and until next week, guys, appreciate you listening. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>